might take your Bibles tonight to 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 21. 1 Chronicles chapter 21. Obviously, our crowd is a little down because of the uh, holiday. I hope they're having fun, but I'm not really going to get discouraged at all because the Lord prepared this message in my heart, and He knew who's going to be here. And honestly, if the other folks were here and wanted to be somewhere else, they wouldn't get anything out of it anyway. If they were just sitting there the whole time, man, I wish I was eating barbecue, man, I wish I was jet skiing, man, I, well, I'm glad y'all are here because y'all want to hear from the Lord. And so that's my prayer that you do tonight. First Chronicles chapter 21, we'll start in verse 1. The Bible says, And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. And David said to Joab and to the rulers of the people, Go number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan, and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. And Joab answered, The Lord make His people an hundred times so many more as they be. But my Lord, the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why then doth my Lord require this thing? Why will, why will He be a cause of trespass to Israel? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Wherefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of the number of the people unto David, and all they of Israel were a thousand thousand and a hundred thousand men that drew sword. And Judah was four hundred, threescore, and ten thousand men that drew sword. But Levi and Benjamin counted he not among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. And God was displeased with this thing. Therefore he smote Israel. And David said unto God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing. But now I beseech thee, do away the iniquity of thy servant. For I have done very foolishly. And the Lord spake unto Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I offer thee three things. Choose thee one of them, that I may do it unto thee. So Gad came to David and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Choose thee. Either three years of famine, or three months to be destroyed before thy foes, while that the sword of thine enemies overtaketh thee, or else three days in the sword of the Lord, even the pestilence in the land and the angel of the Lord, destroying throughout all the coasts of Israel, now therefore advise thyself what word I shall bring again to him that sent me. And David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. Let me fall now into the hand of the Lord, for very great are his mercies, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent pestilence upon Israel, and there fell of Israel seventy thousand men. And God sent an angel unto Jerusalem to destroy it. And as he was destroying, the Lord beheld, and he repented of the evil, and said to the angel that destroyed, It is enough, stay now thine hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Orn in the Jebusite. And David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord stand between the earth and the heaven, having a drawn sword in his hand stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders of Israel, who were clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. Take note in verse 17, the emotion in David. David said unto God, 
Is it not I that commanded the people to be numbered? Even I it is that have sinned and done evil indeed. But as for these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, O Lord my God, be on me and and on my father's house, but not on thy people, that they should be plagued. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word tonight. I thank you for its power. I thank you for the characters in your word that allow us to see glimpses of great men at their worst moments. Lord, I pray tonight that your word would be quick and powerful. I pray that I would be a humble speaker before you. Lord, just a a vessel, just a conduit as to which your Holy Spirit can use. Father, I pray that the hearers in this room would now really focus in as maybe they don't think about barbecuing, maybe they don't think about where they're going tomorrow, but maybe they think about what the eternal Word of God can impact their lives to change. Father, I pray that you do a great work tonight, and it's in your Son's precious and holy name I do pray. Amen. Did you know that there has never been an intentional accident on the road? Now, there have been intentional car crashes, but there's never been an intentional accident. I remember when I was a senior in high school, I was going on a date, and I remember heading out my driveway, and obviously if you're going to a date, you have to smell good on this date, and I had gotten about a quarter mile down the road, and I realized I did not smell good for my date. I had showered and all, I would used my deodorant, but I had not sprayed on my Armani Code cologne. So obviously I needed to go back to the house. I remember turning into this little driveway right down the road from my house, and I was going to turn back towards my house so I could go spray on my cologne. That's a little vain, I know, but uh, I wanted to smell good for the lady, okay? And so I pull into the driveway, I'm about to pull out, and if you can imagine with me, there's a stoplight here, and these cars are coming this way. I look to my left, and there's absolutely nobody coming. I look to my right, and there's a car passing just in front of me, so what I do is I'm going to pull out right behind this car. The car passes and I pull out right on its side. And before I even knew it, I looked left and there was a motorcycle doing this. Coming right at my door. It was far too late for me to react. Far too late for me to do anything. Essentially, I had to watch this man and his wife crash into the side of my vehicle. And it was a scary time because, you know, I wasn't hurt at all. But you can imagine these people were going 40 miles an hour in a motorcycle. And they just came to a dead stop into my Toyota. And, you know, at that moment, you don't really know what to do. You're a little bit scared. It's kind of, uh, you don't know if whether you should pull off the road. You don't know if you should stay there. You don't know what's going on. And, And over the whole course of the deal, I felt terrible. It was a doctor and his wife were driving on their motorcycle and and they hit right into the side of my truck, sent the doctor to the hospital. We went back and visited the doctor. I apologized to him. The accident was totally my fault. But you know what? I never saw him coming. Not once did I see them coming until about two seconds before impact hit. They were in my blind spot. Right here to my left, I just never even saw them. You know, I think a lot of Christians are headed for an accident. They just can't see it coming. I think that they're about to pull out into whatever venture of life that they're going towards. And I fully believe if you could see the danger ahead, you would swerve to avoid the collision. 
This evening, that's what we're going to take a look at is three blind spots that if we could only have the foresight to see, maybe we could avoid some catastrophes in our own lives. First of all, if we look at this passage, there's no doubt that we will see the provocation of Satan. Look in verse 1. Now, this story is uh, uh, given to us in other books of the Bible, and, and you read it, and you're not exactly sure why numbering Israel is such a big deal. You, you know, Moses numbered Israel two separate occasions, and neither time did God send pestilences or an angel of the Lord. But right here in verse 1, uh, the Bible gives us exactly why David sinned greatly in numbering Israel. Verse number 1 of chapter 22. And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. You see, David was a great king. He was a man after God's own heart. We can, and you can think whatever you want about David. Most people have the paradigm that he, he was a godly man that, that just had his occasional struggles. And I believe fully that he was a man completely surrendered and sold out to God. But the fact of the matter is David was just a man. You see here one of David's weaker moments as Satan comes in and he begins to encourage David to number the nation of Israel. Numbering Israel in itself is not wrong, but the reason in which David did it, this source of pride, the source of motivation, as Satan told him, David, you need to number Israel so you can know just how strong you are. You see, tonight, Christian, there is a battle waging for your uh, determination, for your loyalty, for your uh, ability. There's a battle waging. And Christianity today has dumbed down, watered down, just completely squashed the fact that Satan wants to get you. And as Jesus looks at Peter, he says, Peter, Satan hath desired to sift you as wheat. You know, this evening... Uh, as Christians all around this world are not even having church tonight, not necessarily because of the holiday, just because they don't see it necessary to ever have church on Sunday night. There's churches all over this world who have dumbed down the gospel, who have dumbed down the uh, doctrine of separation from this world. There are churches all over this nation who have completely removed repentance and the devil and sin from the plan of salvation. You see, there's a war tonight wanting you. And you may say, Brother Andrew, this is a teenager message. You know what? I preach every Wednesday night that Satan wants to get your kids. But Satan wants to get you too. Satan no less values you than he does your children. You see, just because you're in this church and you're an adult and you've been saved for so long, you think you're above Satan? The person who doesn't value their competition has made themselves no competition at all. If you don't understand exactly how powerful Satan is and how he is a roaming, roaring lion, as 1 Peter says, Ephesians 6 verse 11 says, Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand the wiles of the devil. He's a clever one. He's a crafty one. And he wants you to fail. He's not your friend. And we have this idea that he is this uh, red little cartoonish character with pitchfork. Obviously, he deals with hay. He's a hay vendor. And we imagine the little red tail. It's pointed, obviously. And, 
And that's our paradigm of Satan. But you see, when God created Satan, he was the, the, one of the most beautiful, one of the most powerful beings in all the universe. He's not a cartoon character. He is not your bad shoulder and good shoulder. He wants to destroy you. And Christian, he's destroying our churches. He's got so many Christians by the, by the jugular, they don't even know. And it's sad to say that, but it's simply true. Let's take a look at the two ways that he lured David into doing this. First of all, he caused David to forget about God's blessings. He caused David to forget about God's blessings. In verse 3, look at this. This is a very good reason to surround yourself with godly influences. Because David has a bad idea. Everybody knows it's a bad idea. And there's a courageous man that stands up and says, David, you ought not do this. But right here we see Joab and the Bible says, and Joab answered, the Lord make his people an hundred times so many more as they be. But my Lord, the king, are they not all my servants, uh, all my Lord's servants? Why then doth my Lord require this thing? You see, King David sitting upon his throne views out over Israel and he stands on his balcony and he sees the many buildings. He sees the many soldiers at his beck and call. And just for a moment, he begins to take a little bit of pride in everything that he has accomplished in his days. He says, Joab, I can only see a select few people and I can only see these servants, but there's so many more. Joab, you go number the nation of Israel. Joab stands up and he says, David, even when we number them, they're all going to still be yours. Hasn't God already done so much for you? You see, David's far removed from the little boy that charged Goliath with the sling. He's now the man that kills with spears and swords. He's the king. He's the monarch. And he has completely removed the fact that it was not him that slayed the giant. He has completely forgotten the fact that that day, as thousands and thousands of Israelites stood upon the, the, the valley top, they looked down and, and David was just a symbol of God's power, providence, and deliverance. And David had simply forgotten and he just began to think, well, maybe it was my accurate sling throw. Maybe it was all that time I spent on the backside shepherding. Maybe it was me hitting those cans with that sling. Maybe it was me. After all, didn't everybody tell David he was something? What was it? They, he came back from war and he's killed one man. And everybody says, Saul hath slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. He's accomplished one feat and everybody sees him. They fall in love with him. They're so impressed with this young man and they say, David, you're really somebody. My friend, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget that we were all just sinners saved by grace. Don't forget that you failed many, many times before. And probably if we were all honest, there's a little bit of failure in your future. Probably, my friend, too many Christians have just began to think there's something. Too many Christians have fallen for this ploy of Satan that says, you know what? You, you read your Bible. You know what? You even the other day accidentally invited somebody to church when they found out you went to church. And Satan's begin to tell you that you've accomplished something. 
the very moment Satan begins to let you think that you're something, you have become nothing. The very moment you think you've got something, you've absolutely attained nothing. Oh man, God's been good to us, has He not? God, I'm telling you, it is amazing to me. Every visitor that I meet and shake hands with, I, I asked a couple this morning, how'd you hear about our church? We just drove by. You would be so surprised out of all the evangelistic outreaches that we do and the soul winning type emphasis that we put on this church. How many people put the first reason they came to our church was because they drove by? But hasn't God blessed us to give us that, this building? Hasn't God blessed us to give us the men and the leadership in this church to allow us to run programs and do uh, themes and do great things and always have a vision? Has not God blessed this church? Has not God blessed you personally in your own life? My friend, you're here tonight. God's blessing you. My friend, if you claim that you are a saved Christian, God's blessing you greatly tonight. I was just praying with the teenagers right before we came in here, and I just said, as we remember the fallen soldiers, may we not forget the slain Savior. God's been good, friend. But what did we do to deserve it? Nothing. We haven't done anything. God's been so good. James 1 verse 17 says, Every good and perfect gift cometh fr- from, uh, down from the Father of lights, of whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Anything that's worth having in this world has come from God. And my friend, He's good to us all the time. All the time. You see, David just had forgotten how much God had truly blessed him. But secondly, He causes us to focus on our successes. So we forget about God's blessings, but then we begin to think that we've accomplished something. Look at verse 5 and verse 6. Now notice this. He's not just numbering Israel. He's numbering a specific type of Israel. In verse 5, And all they of Israel were a thousand thousand and a hundred thousand men that what? Drew sword. And Judah was four hundred, threescore, and ten thousand men that what? Drew sword. You see, David wasn't interested in how many people he was king over. He was interested in how powerful he was. He didn't necessarily care about the women or the children. He wanted to know how many people he could send to battle for himself. And Joab comes back and he says, this is the number, David. And it's so sad to me to see the progression from when David was the little boy who was just delivering some cheese to his brothers, and now he, then he slays a giant, and now he's sitting high upon his throne, just counting how many people that are at his beck and call. Not only did he forget about God's blessings, but he just began to think he was something special. Do y'all remember how the Bible described David? Ruddy. Of a fair countenance. Our, our paradigm of David in the David and Goliath story is what? A very short man. Very small, very feeble, is it not? And we always say so that God could show that he was doing something great through something so small and insignificant. Did David really grow up that much? I mean, King Saul was the one that was powerful, right? 
King Saul, remember in the selection, as Samuel selected King Saul, he stood head and shoulders over everybody else. But David, he's the same old ruddy fellow that he was when he slew Goliath. But now, in his own mind, every man in the Jewish army, every man that he could have draw a sword for him, they were all at his beck and call. And he says, Joab, you go out and you tell me how many men I can command. You tell me how many things I can go conquer. Oh, don't, don't ever get to the point where you think that you've changed from when you were just a lowly teenager. You see, so many times it breaks my heart when my dad preaches a sermon. For 45 minutes preaches the gospel, preaches repentance, preaches great doctrine of the Bible. Three amens. And you teenagers, yeah, get them, preacher! Yeah, you sick them, brother. They need it. What are you saying? You're saying that they're less spiritual. You're saying that they're less significant. You're saying that they aren't right with God as you are. He says, you need to quit your drinking. And you know you drink. You know you have a problem. Oh, I ain't going to say amen there. And you teenagers ought not climb in the back seat of the car with another person. Yeah, amen, preacher. You're nothing special. I'm nothing special. The pastor of the church is nothing special. He's a gang member. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners, my friends. We're nothing special at all. I'm so glad that with God is in it, He can do anything. With God, things all are impossible. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. But you understand the emphasis is not on you. It is on the power of Christ. It is on the ability of Christ to deliver you in every situation. What are you? What am I that God would take thought of me? What am I special that the creator of this universe would know my name, know who I am, know my problems, know my hurts, know my sorrows? I'm a nobody. And that's really what we all are. You see, Satan's trying to get you. And he's trying to make you think because you read a proverb a day, you're special. Oh, don't fall for it. Don't allow yourself to ever think you've attained anything. Because the moment you do, you have fallen short of the goal of Christ. Oh, you see, one of the major blind spots that Satan gets us, is, gets us with is the fact that he is the provoker. Satan is the provoker. Secondly, look with me if you will. There is the blind spot of the promise of suffering. The promise of suffering. Look in verse 7. And God was displeased with this thing. This thing being the fact that David numbered Israel. He was provoked by Satan to number Israel. Got no godly leadership. Got no godly direction. Even rejected it at one point. So God was displeased with this thing. Therefore he smote Israel. Now look in verse 8. Now David, one thing to admire about him, if you don't admire anything else, he's a good repenter. And that's a skill. I'm not even kidding there, because a lot of people just don't. That's a hard thing to humble yourself. And, and David got good at it. Psalm chapter 51, right here in Second Chronicles, uh, uh, verse 8, David said unto God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing. But now I beseech thee, do away with the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. 
Has David repented? Yes. Has God forgiven? Yes. Verse 9. Uh, sorry, verse 10. Go and tell David, Thus saith the Lord, I offer thee these three things. Choose thee one of them, that I may do it unto thee. Has David repented? Has God forgiven? Is there still a punishment? One of the things Satan wants to get you on is the fact that you can sin and get away with it. Oh, the blood covers all my sins. You're exactly right. But what do you think the fear of God is? The fear of God is the motivation that He can take you out. The fear of God is a love, a reverential fear of Him. You see, my friends, one of the things that teenagers forget, one of the things that adults forget, and one of the best traps of the devil is the blood covers it all, removes it all, forgets it all. And we never have to suffer the consequences. David repented. God forgave. There still was punishment. You see, my friend, there is a promise of suffering. You sin. Disobedience always brings discipline. Disobedience will always bring discipline. If God did not discipline His children, He would not be a holy and just God. His righteousness requires a punishment for sin. You see, I'm glad that I don't have to go to hell. I'm glad that I can never lose my salvation. I'm glad that I never have to spend a night in hell. But my friend, I will have to spend, uh, 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 I will have to pay for the things that I do. First of all, what happens when this promise of suffering? First of all, God's simply displeased with your sin. God is displeased. In verse 7, God was displeased. You ever been spanked by your father? Absolutely. I was very rarely spanked by my father. Not because I didn't deserve more, but simply most of the time his words could get to me more so than the belt. But the belt was an effective method nonetheless. Now my mom spanked me a little bit more than, uh, than my dad did, but my dad only spanked me probably three occasions in my entire life. One of them was when I made my first C in middle school. That was when they were expecting me to be an overachiever. They stopped that. I began to get C's a little bit more predominantly. I guess this is average. This is the expectations we have for it. And I remember standing there. and our, I can remember in my mind the way our furniture was set up in the living room. I can remember my dad sitting in his seat right here in front of me, grabbing me by the arm. And he proceeded to give me six of the hardest spankings I had ever had in my entire life. But to make them worse, he lectured me between each and every one of them. (laughs) I tell you, you better than this, Andrew Wolfenbarger. Take your Bible to Genesis chapter 21 and began to preach a sermon. Now flip on over to Romans chapter 8. Now take your Bible to Revelation chapter 1. You have lost your first love, my brother. He began to preach sermonettes to me between each and every single spanking. 
absolutely dreadful, absolutely terrible. Every time he smacked me, the fire in my pants began to well. And then just about the time it had simmered down, here comes another one, brother. So light her up again, boys. That's the way it was. That was the worst spanking I ever got in my entire life. What I actually made it worse was he sent me down to get my own belt. My dad has, uh, has a lot of belts. He has coon hunting belts. He has western belts. He has dress belts. And so I got the flimsiest, most Walmart looking one I could bring. And he goes back and gets his cowboy belt. You know, the one that looks like a horse girdle. The one that looks like it should be driving slaves, not whipping children. You know, oh, it was terrible. It was just an absolutely dreadful spanking. But I tell you what. I look back on it now and I know he was driving me to better things. He was trying to encourage me. A very prompt, stern encouraging. You are better than this. You know what the Bible equates God's chastening to? Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6 says, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Then the Bible says, Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us. And we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? See, discipline is a godly pattern in the Bible. It's a biblical pattern for discipline. Uh, You discipline your children, spare the rod, spoil the child. Would it not be hypocritical of God to do the exact same thing? If God said, well, I know you're in the wrong, but I just can't bring it upon myself to discipline you. If God said that, how are we supposed to obey the commandment to spank our children? You see, God's a just God. And He he follows His own words and suggestions for our life. He's submissive to His own book. He gave us the way that He is. And He says, if my children disobey, I discipline them. You see, you get outside God's will, you bring sin into your life, it's only a matter of time before God chastens you. Because whom God loveth, He chasteneth. Secondly, and this is a beautiful thing found in this passage, God does is displeased with sin, but secondly, God disperses His grace. Look at this in verse 13. This is phenomenal. And David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. Let me fall now into the hand of the Lord, for very great are His mercies. And that's a true promise of the Bible. Amen. But let me not fall into the hand of man. That was a very wise decision David made there. Look in verse 15. Now God sent pestilence upon the people in verse 14. And in verse 15, And God sent an angel unto Jerusalem to destroy it. And as he was destroying, the Lord beheld, and he repented him of the evil, and said to the angel that destroyed, It is enough, stay now thine hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. See, God is in the middle of his punishment on David. And he looks down and he's so merciful and gracious. He says, that's enough. You see, I'm here today to tell you that if you are in sin, 
that if there's something in your life that you know displeases God, that is contrary to His Word, there is always grace at the throne of God. There is always mercy. You can always escape the pain and the suffering of sin. And it's only found in the grace of God. And if God has His hand of chastening upon your life, the bank statements aren't matching up with the checkbook, your life is in a turmoil, the wife isn't getting along with you, everything's not working out in your life, come to the throne of God to find mercy and let Him just say, it is enough. You see, most Christians think they're in financial debt, think they have terrible things going on in their life just because they're, you know, that's coincidence. Most of the time, it's God's hand upon them. And we're too Bible ignorant to really submit to the one true giver of the punishment. Oh, there's always grace. I love the fact that God is in the middle of the punishment and He says, that's enough. Lamentations 3 verse 22 says, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning Great is thy faithfulness. You understand, that was written from the pen of a man who got very rebellious at the end of his life. That was written from the pen of the wisest man in all the world. And he just got a little backslidden and he's finally saying, Great are the mercies of the Lord. They're new every single morning. They've been that way for my father. They've been that way for me. And they'll be that way for you too. Great are the mercies of the Lord. For He is faithful. You see, it's a great thing that we serve a merciful God. I can honestly say I don't deserve to be standing and speaking before you this evening. I have nothing to give you apart from the mercy of God. As my dad said this morning, the guy wouldn't sit with you on the same pew if he knew everything about you. And my friend, I'm here to tell you that if you knew me inside and out, you would be so ashamed. My God is a merciful God. And my friend, my God loves me and He's forgiven me and He says, I can do great things through a vessel willing to be used. Oh man, God is merciful. And may we never, never just get a little too prideful to go to God and repent. You ever heard that old saying, this is going to hurt me much more than it will hurt you. And if any human said that, I would say, I don't believe you. But truly God looks down on David. He says, it's hurting me more than it's going to hurt you, David. It's enough. In the middle of your punishment, in the middle of your chastening, my friend, God can look down and He can say, it's enough. But grace is only found in repentance. Grace is only found in forsaking that sin. A wise man will fall seven times and still rise up again. Oh man, God is a merciful God. So we see, secondly, the promise of suffering. And finally, we look at the pain that is shared. The blind spot of the pain that is eventually shared. Look in verse 17. And David has said unto God, Is it not I that commanded the people to be numbered? Even I it is that have sinned and done evil indeed. But as for these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, O Lord my God, be on me and on my father's house, but not on thy people, that they should be plagued. David looks out, and as this angel passes over Israel... And man after man after man falls to this angel. 
the king is broken hearted. He looks out at the devastation that his bad decision has caused all the nation of Israel. And he's broken hearted and he says, God, was it not me that decided to number Israel? God, was it not me that made a bad decision and forsook godly counsel and did what you did not want me to do? Was it not me? Then why is everyone else suffering? Are you so ignorant to think that your sin only affects you? Let's travel back to the garden. The Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3. A very beautiful young woman one day. Out in the garden picking fruit. She's probably a butterfly flies by, probably a deer. Everything's perfect. A serpent wrapped around a tree says, Eve, go on, taste this fruit. And say you and me are right there hidden behind a rock. Say we're there. And Satan begins his dialogue with Eve. Oh, it's good. God told you that you will become... God doesn't want you to eat the fruit because He knows that in the time that you eat thereof, you shall become as God's knowing good and evil. And me and you are hidden behind a rock right there in the garden. And if we could just step up and say, Eve, don't do it! Eve, don't do it. Don't you know that this decision will not only affect you, it will affect all of mankind. But more importantly, your son will kill your son because of this decision. Travel with me now to the balcony of David's kingdom. David standing there on the perch should be at war should be with his men in battle, is the custom of the kings to go to war. And he stands on the balcony one day, just enjoying the breeze. He looks down and there's a beautiful woman bathing herself. And David sees something he knows he ought not be looking at. He sees it and he knows within himself it's a bad decision. And say, me and you are perched right there behind a column there at the palace. And, and if we could just yell out, David, don't do it. David, don't do it. Don't you know this decision will ruin your family? David, you will lose the child that you have. David, don't you know that Amnon will love Tamar? Don't you know that Absalom will then kill Amnon? Don't you know that Tamar will never, ever, ever be able to marry? She'll be ashamed the rest of her life. David, this decision affects you more if it affects your family. It affects more than just you. Now go with me to the house in Burleson. Go with me to the house in Joshua where the father brings home a 12-pack every night. He indulges in this 12-pack. He enjoys this 12-pack. But by the end of the 12-pack, daddy's no longer daddy anymore. And the kind, caring man usually now finds himself enraged at everything. Angered at the mere fact that his kids would not be quiet. 
And so he begins to make bad decisions. Now you sit there on the couch with me and if we could just look at that man and say, Sir, don't you know that this decision to drink the alcohol is is ruining your life? Don't you know that your wife is falling more and more out of love with you every day? Don't you know that your kids are starting to hate you? Daddy, don't you know? Now you go with me to the business place, the workplace. A woman in her office and she's feeling a little neglected at home. Somebody begins to show her attention at the workplace. Begins to make her feel special. You go with me as something very innocent, very mundane, very normal begins to escalate. Goes from one or two emails a day to lunch at a cafe. And now you sit there with me in the office as they begin to kiss. And they begin to do things they ought not do. And and you're with me and we say, don't do it, lady. Don't do it. Don't you know that your home's going to be destroyed? Don't you know that your life's going to fall apart for this fake, false relationship? Don't you know? You think your your, your sin only affects you? You think nobody else in your life is going to feel the pain of your decision? Let's ask David, as an angel stands in the sky, sword out drawn, slaying his subjects, let's let's ask him whether his sin affected more than him. One of the biggest lies of the devil is that you'll never have to pay, and even if you do, it's not going to be that big a deal. My friend, you make bad decisions. You fall out of the will of God for your life. You know that you ought to be doing better. You know that you ought to submit yourself to God. You know that a proverb a day is not enough. You know that reading your Bible never is not enough. And so you just need to get down on, the, on, the, uh, on this altar and you need to fall humbly before God. Take a note out of David's notebook and just say, God, I'm sorry. God, I need to get it right. And in my life, I have seen blind spots begin to occur. And I've forgotten about the fact that Satan wants to sift me. I've forgotten about the fact that there's a much larger game afoot than what these little bitty eyes are seeing. I've forgotten about it all. You need to come to this altar and you need to get right tonight. You ever heard the saying, hindsight is 20-20? I've been fortunate in my life to have good vision. When I was a little younger... I would go into doctor's offices and I would see the eye exam charts on the wall. And I would begin at the top line. And the nurse would say, read this line, now read this line. And she would say, okay, now read this line and you're good. I would read that line, absolutely no problem. And then she'd say, okay, you have 20-20 vision. And I'd go check the last line out for me, the very bottom line. And I'd read them, no problem at all. Say, you have 2010 vision. Your vision is better than perfect. I've been fortunate. I've been very blessed to have that in my life. Now I'm beginning to notice, however, if I focus on something very long, it gets a little blurry. Uh, I mean, I am going to look like that one day, (laughs) y'all. There's no ifs, ands, buts about it. See, the problem is my chest was never on the level. (laughs) 
My chest was never up here. I ain't got one. Now it's just going to look goofy when it's straight down. Bloop. That's going to look goofy as all get out. You see, that's exactly what I'm going to look like. He, he had that great vision when he was younger too. You see, I, I'm going to one day be wearing glasses and I'm going to be wishing every moment, man, I wish I could read that bottom line. I wish I could read the top line. I wish I could read a billboard, you know? <laughs> Hindsight truly is 2020, though, isn't it? We can all look back on mistakes we've made and said, man, I wish I'd have done that differently. Man, I wish I would have seen that coming. I look back on my accident with that motorcycle and I just say, I wish I'd have never been so vain to need cologne. You see, we all look back and we all have regrets. But Satan's trying to blur Christian's vision. He's trying to make you think that you're, you're really, really accomplishing something in Christianity. He's trying to make you think that even if you make a bad decision, it really won't affect anybody. Don't fall for Satan's lies. In the words of David, he says, I am in a great strait. I am torn. I am empty. I am messed up. My sin has caused me this. Satan wants you there. He wants to chew you up and spit you out. You see the Holy Spirit of God speaking to people tonight. Proverbs 1 has an interesting verse in it. The Bible's telling a young man how to stay away from the company of the wicked. And verse 17 says this, Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird. Do you get what that's saying? If the bird can see the trap, it's not going to fly into the trap. You see, Satan's trap is no good if you know it's coming. You see, tonight, I'm sure there's Christians in here that say, you know what? I began to think that I was something in Christianity. And I just need to get back to the place where I am empty and I am dying to self every day. There's Christians like that in here. I'm 100% sure that there are Christians in here that are in sin and they know they need to get out of it. I promise you it will destroy you. The Bible says there is a way that seemeth right unto the man, but the ends thereof are of destruction. You see, you can get mercy, you can find grace, you can find forgiveness, but it's found here in humbling yourself and just being a little bit like a little bird that has a little bit of foresight and saying, if I know the trap's there, I'm not going to go into it.